Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Venice edition. Today we're chatting with Jody Evans, a political activist, a promoter of peace, and the founder of Code Pink. You know, that organization that disrupts congressional hearings when out of the blue they appear chanting, holding signs, and wearing pink. Typically, Jordan does not allow me to do these interviews via Zoom, but Jody has lived in Venice for 50 years. And when I met her a number of years ago while I was driving for Lyft, we had a fantastic conversation. So I jumped at the chance to have a little bit more in-depth chat with her this week via Zoom, where she is in Washington, D.C., stirring some stuff up. What I love about Jody is she really questions everything. She does not buy into your, or my, mainstream beliefs. She's one of the most idealistic people you will ever meet, and she puts her money where her mouth is. She literally speaks truth to power all year round. And stay tuned, because we talk about the Capitol Police, an organization that has arrested her countless times, and what they are saying to her now, post-January 6th. So welcome, please, Jody Evans. Jody, thanks so much for talking to, uh, to me today. I know how busy you are. Do you feel like people know of Code Pink, but don't really connect it with one particular person? Um, I think it depends on you know how you've engaged because some people come through a particular person, but um, certainly you know when the media covers this, it's Code Pink, which is what we want it to be. It's not about an individual; it's about the collective, which is how you create change. Yes. So you're in D.C. right now? I am in D.C. right now. We just launched a new campaign called Cut the Pentagon. And it's really just a big umbrella to show that so many groups are about cutting the Pentagon, but Congress isn't listening. And so today we were with CASA, one of our um, coalition members, and they had thousands of people in the street on immigration rights. Some unelected person, a parliamentarian in the Senate has decided this piece has to be pulled out of the budget that would support immigration rights. Uh, so Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was speaking and thousands marched um, past ICE to in front of the Capitol. And we were there and, um, you know, Congresswoman Omar was like, yes, cut the Pentagon. And yes, stop making refugees with that money in the Pentagon and stop, you know, impoverishing people by taking money and investing it in war instead of investing it in people. Um, because it's called cut the Pentagon for people, planet, peace and a future. Much of the Pentagon money is going into continuing the U.S. investment in nuclear weapons, which um, as they aggress on China, becomes an existential threat to life on the planet. Some critics to uh, military spending say it's just not being used for the right things, that that bombs and planes are passe, that we should be spending if we are going to be spending money on defense, that we should be worried more about um, cybersecurity. Would you agree with that? Okay, so let's talk about defense. Um, because defense is a made up thing that the United States has made up since World War II to make the rich richer, to build weapons, and to create a more unsafe world. So all this weapon 
investment is about some fantasies that are dreamt up by people, you know, in suits behind desks while people are killed every day, murdered, murdered every day. And we watched that murder recently with the drone strike in Afghanistan. And that is what happens every single day. And so, you know, let's just like look back at Guantanamo. So Bush he would say, you're, you know, a terrorist. So I'm going to put you in Guantanamo. And then what did we find out? That out of the 900 people in Guantanamo, two were actually, you know, possibly creating some kind of resistance to the United States. Because we forget that the Saudi Arabians who took down the towers took them down because the United States would not listen to them and take their base out of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, it's like, you know, it depends on who gets to tell the story as what the story is. Well, we've been telling the story from Code Pink for a decade that these drone strikes kill innocent people. And we have been to Yemen. We have been to Pakistan. We have heard the stories from family members, just like now everybody in the world has heard the stories from family members that there's nobody from ISIS or Al Qaeda in this strike. There's just a lot of innocent people like the 34 kids in a bus in Yemen. Um, there's so many of these. And it's what happens when Israel flies drones over Palestine and how much damage and death happens there. Um, matter of fact, you know, the <laughs> Israel practices new weapons on the Palestinian people that then the United States uses on other people of color around the globe. Um, so defense. So that's like, first of all, the made up story. If we took the money, which like in the last 20 years is $21 trillion, a number that's just kind of ungrockable. If we took that money and instead invested in life instead of debt, and we made um, people of the world not so unequal to those of us in the empire in the United States of America, if we took care of even the people of our own country, do you know that $25 billion is the amount of money they want to attack on to this year's budget? That's what it would cost to vaccinate the entire world. That I call safe and secure, right? That um, when 2% of the United States have died from COVID. Um, so <laughs> we, we've got to like look at um, what are we investing in? I call it a war economy. So there's this war economy. Um, it's the extractive, oppressive, destructive economy. And it is killing you, our communities, and the planet. And that's that $21 you know, trillion. But there's also a peace economy. And it is the giving, sharing, caring, thriving, relational, resilient economy without which none of us would be alive. And we all learned about that economy during COVID, right? What is essential to life? Well, the war economy has been starving. What is essential to life? It has been privatizing what is essential to life. It has been you know, making toxic what is essential to life. Like look at line three with a pipeline being built to make those lakes and rivers in Minnesota toxic. So, you know, we need to cut the Pentagon and move that money to the needs of the people, the planet, peace, and the future. And so, um, you know, when you say what should it be spent on, 
Defense is a lie told to the people so they, they can steal your money and make the rich richer. Jody, this is why I fell in love with you when I was in a car with you for five minutes. You're um, you you pushed me so far out of my comfort zone and I appreciate it because I get from you that you're sincere about this. And I also get from you that you look at, at life in a more critical way than even I do. And I thought that I was the most critical eye. And so I really do appreciate people like you who don't just buy. I mean, I guess I am really just Joe Sixpack. I watch MSNBC and I think, oh, that's the liberal. That's the liberal point of view. Right. And you're cringing. This this video is not going to make it to the podcast. So uh, listeners at home, she's cringing when I say this. But but I really did appreciate our conversation as short as it was, because you were more critical about Obama in smarter ways in our in our brief conversation than than I've seen people be critical towards Trump, for example. And 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 I guess I appreciated it from you because I feel like you're coming from this ultra educated point of view and also a very idealistic point of view, obviously. But um, but I think it, it's pushing people. So here's my question. Now that we've somehow survived Trump, think think Ja, right? Um, and we have Biden, <laughs> which I know wasn't Democrats first choice um, a year before that election. No, I don't think anybody was talking about Biden back then. Um, now that we have Biden, what what would you recommend for people who voted for Biden to um, to create some of the change that I'm sure that you want? So, <laughs> I mean, Tony, um, I ran a presidential campaign in 1992. And so I got to see the belly of the beast up close and personal. At that time, the presidential campaign was about taking money out of politics because we talk about a democracy, but you can't have a democracy with $4 trillion spent on an election. That means the rich own the people in power. And that money needs to go somewhere else, not on this horrible like cesspool thing called elections and that are supposedly make democracy. It's really ugly. People around the world look at it and it's not only really ugly, but we have now used it in India and in, in Brazil and gotten Modi and um, Bolsonaro because we were afraid of BRICS. So we, we put in these horrible leaders like we always do. The United States doesn't like people who really represent democracy and the people. They only like people that represent the power and the money. So when you, you ask me about Biden, or, I mean, the system in the United States is toxic. And people talk about it like it's a democracy, but it's not a democracy because if you look at what the people want and what actually happens, it has nothing to do with what the people want. It has everything to do with what the rich and powerful corporations want. 92, I ran a presidential campaign on money out of politics, because if you don't get the money out of politics, it doesn't matter what you stand for. The rich will always win. And they are fleecing everyone in this country at a rate I have. I mean, in 92, I thought it was bad. Right now, it's a fleecing that is on steroids. 
and it's everywhere. So I was just in the streets with Bernie today and he was calling it out. Why? Because there's a piece of legislation that he has to try to get it so that Medicare can negotiate pharmaceuticals. And guess what? $4 billion was spent on lobbyists by pharmaceutical companies and they're pulling that piece of legislation. That is one of the examples of the war economy on the people. What people are forced to pay, how many people die because of this. It is greed, greed kills. And we see it in families across the United States. What people have to pay for medication is obscene, illegal, immoral, and a crime. And he's out there just screaming in front of this pharmaceutical company that's killing people. And not only that, like it's killing people by what did they do to manipulate so people would take these painkillers that now kill our kids? How many adults do I know that are losing 18 to 25 year old kids on what? I mean, it's just insane. Um, and we, we sit here and allow it. So I, I refuse to agree that we live in a democracy because we do not have a media that educates the public. It diseducates the public, including MSNBC. I mean, it, it dumbs down the people to not ask these questions that, you know, why does my child have to pay so much for college and be indebted for the rest of their life? Why does my parent have to pay so much money, they they have diabetes and they're, they just kill themselves because they don't want to burden the family. How many stories do you know about that besides the people that just die because they can't get the, the health care they need? So this is not the right way to be alive in what is called the wealthiest country in the world. This is insanity. I've been to so many cities in the last few months where in every city there are homeless encamp, um, unhoused encampments. So the fact that we're swallowing this and that, you know, you, you just got, you know, splayed before you, I'd say that, you know, the Pentagon just got its pants pulled down by spending all this money and losing a war that we told them never to go to, where the women are worse off in the United States 20 years later than they are in Afghanistan. So, I mean, uh, militarization, othering, what I call the war economy, what it does, it forces you to think in scarcity. It alienates you from others. It, it, it's, it makes you transactional instead of relational is no way to live. It is no way to be alive and we've got to push back. So what we do at Code Pink is we say, divest yourself from the war economy because it does force us into these patterns that we first of all have to divest ourselves from. And it's kind of like what you said about Code Pink. We need to be engaged in the streets. It's why our new campaign is called hashtag cut the Pentagon because everything that has a need out there needs the Pentagon to be cut because we need that money for life, not for death. And oh my God, it is about greed kills. That money goes straight to the pockets of the rich straight to the pockets of the rich.
you're intimately aware of the Capitol Police. You've probably been arrested by the Capitol Police more than most most people. A hundred times. <laughs> In the wake of January 6th, um, America is finally kind of aware of Capitol Police. Um, and they have been um, considered victims. I guess some of them were victims um, of that riot. Um, how, how did you view the Capitol Police before January 6th and today? Is it the same? So I, I would say today I'm shocked. Um, and I've talked to a bunch. I've been arrested since. So in my last arrest, I was talking to the cops that arrested me and just to see how they were, you know, because I knew they must be traumatized. You know, that was pretty traumatic. And I love, you know, the Capitol Police, they're, you know, they're always like, sorry, I love you. Just doing my job. I mean, I had an amazing experience with the Capitol Police once. Um, we'd taken over the Hart Building. We were banners, you know, no war all hanging down. It was very early, like I want to say 2004, five. And um, this Capitol Police had arrested me. I dropped a giant banner that said no war. And as he was walking me out, he started crying. He said, I want to thank you for what you're doing. My mm. son died last week in Iraq. Oh. And I, I'm so grateful that you do this. And I'm so sorry, I have to arrest you. Um, so I've had many encounters where like one time we had like 10,000 women, we were marching down to the White House. It was the first time um, since, uh, you know, after 06 that the White House was surrounded by like fence and there were cops, you know, all around us. And um, there was a, a phalanx of cops and we came in and I had like, 25 really famous women and along and one of them was Alice um, Walker and um, we got we get there and we start singing um, and uh, this black cop lets go of the white cop's hand he goes sorry bro but I can't go home to my wife and said I, I didn't let Alice Walker into the White House when slaves built the White House <laughs> So, so you've always had a cordial professional relationship. Well, I mean, they're always like, how are you? You know, and they, you know, they've been brutal to us and they've arrested us for just holding a banner or for nothing really for holding up peace signs. So I'm, I know all sides of them. They can be brutal. They can be kind, just like everyone, you know, there's a whole, you know, it's the universe as is everything in the universe. So are the Capitol Police. Do, do so, they normally carry guns? Was this was January 6th? So, so I just want to say when I was watching January 6th, which I was watching with many other activists as we were having a, a Zoom call. And then all of a sudden we're looking at our phones and we we pull in. We're just like, where are the police? I mean, we were there for Black Lives Matter when there was phalanx of them with, you know, full on armor and guns and the steps full of them like where the Capitol Police were asking the question because we know what it's like. And shock, I was in shock. And I was pretty dismayed when I watched a flag, you know, pummeling a, a police officer. And when I was hearing the voices that, you know, that were coming from friends, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, you know, of like panic. Um, so that whole day was, bizarre mm -hmm. because it was nothing like that had ever happened in all the days of my activism for the last 50 years at, at the Capitol, nothing like that had ever happened. And the behavior, like how it was happening, 
and why there was no one, like there was plenty of time to call out anyone. Tons of, I mean, when something's happening, they call out everyone. They call out the DC police. They call out the national guard. They call like, where was, you know, where were the flanks that usually show up when there's too many of us and they call out the next flank. It was not, I mean, I've been in the streets with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and they'll call out more and more and more and they'll put us all at, you know, they'll arrest us. I mean, I've been outside the white house when 550 of us been arrested. Um, so that was just bizarre. Mm-hmm. And I asked um, the last arrest I had um, with the poor people's campaign, I asked the cops around me, like, you know, how are you? And, and everyone had a different story, but um, one guy had just come back to the force. He'd been really badly hurt and he'd just come back from, um, you know, recovering. But um, one of the um, cops said to me, he said, I'm still in shock. My wife, she said she'd rather I be a firefighter in California than a Capitol Police. Um, and my whole family is on me and I'm still in therapy for PTSD. Why not about what happened, but about that I can no longer trust the person next to me in my work. Yeah. And that was just like, you know, I don't, I don't know who to trust next to me anymore. And that is the hardest thing. So, um, you know, I'm sure it's, you could see from what happened, like, you know, who committed suicide, like who resigned. I mean, everyone in that force and yesterday they, um, we were doing a big action in front of the Congress and they came up to me and they're like, I'm sorry, you know, the rules, you know, like, please forgive me. I got to kick you out. You know, like. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's bring it back home real quick. Um, and we'll, hopefully we'll, we'll have enough time to go back to the Capitol, but um, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, the LA city council just passed a, a new rule that said protesters have to be at least 300 feet away from um, officials' homes. Are you aware of this at all? I, I heard about it, yes. What do you, what's your stand on that? Because I've seen on Twitter a lot of left-wing um, uh, activists are very upset about this. They want to be able to get as close as they can to these officials. Meanwhile, I'm thinking... You, you can be loud 300 feet away. <laughs> How, wh- what's your stance on this? Look, they won't let us very near the White House where the person with real power is. So, you know, I mean, they're, they, I've watched over my entire lifetime, the civil liberties being restricted more and more and more as they, again, let's go back to you live in a democracy and you get to do and um, people in power want to protect themselves more and more. You know, I've been trying to stop uh, the drilling of oil 2,500 feet away from people would actually kills them. And the fact that people with power are afraid means they're not serving the people anymore. And what was really interesting today with Alon Omar is, and Bernie is they, they don't have police around them. Why? Because they're speaking for the people. They let people just come surround them, take pictures. And, you know, they're because they represent the people, right? If you're not representing the people, you, you know, why do you get to protect yourself? I don't, that doesn't make sense. You say you, you know, we we have civil liberty, you know, it's like, look, if you are representing the people, there's no reason you need to protect 
yourself because guess what? They're not going to be at your front door yelling at you. And the thing about there's a populist uprising and it's both on the left and the right because the people are not being served because it's very obvious to both sides that we are really just being fleeced by the greedy and by the corporations and they're getting everything they want. And we're left with uh, a, a fabric of society that's being ripped apart. We're left with n- not the money that we need to just basically be alive. And if you can't deliver that, then there's going to be problems. Now, I live part-time in China and I know everybody's got a reaction to China, but I want to tell you, they pulled everyone out of poverty in a really beautiful way. It was direct democracy. It was the kind of Peace Corps of China. There were 2 million Peace Corps people who went to where the people were living in poverty and listened to them and learned what they need. And they had five things not just what the world poverty level is you have to make above whatever a day, but that you also had to live near healthcare. You you had to have food, you had to have housing, and you had to have an education. So it wasn't even the basic. It was, what is it to be a human being? You have to have, we you have dignity, you're a human being, we have to deliver this to you. So the government said, our job is to deliver this to you. How do we do that? And guess what? In 1970, China was one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. It has now taken a billion 400,000 people out of poverty. Now, I don't know. You know, (laughs) (laughs) the difference between socialism and capitalism is that in capitalism, capital runs the state, and in socialism, the state is run for the people. Um, and then we're going to, you know, call everybody names and, you know, throw mud at them because it's really embarrassing <laughs> that they can do what we can't do. And people are going to start like calling on us to do that. So, you know, we're going to call them authoritarians in, you know, instead of seeing that um, it's, it's possible. Why don't, why don't, if instead of calling them authoritarians, why don't you figure out how to do it as a non-authoritarian. There you go. Uh, let me just double back real quick on your answer, because I liked your answer about how Bernie and the squad don't seem to need security. However, um, something that I never expected to happen, um, uh, part of the reason that the LA uh, City Council wants protections for the 300 feet is the health director, Barbara Ferrer, is being protested by the the right um, who don't want to wear masks, who don't want to wear, don't have to have, don't want to have vaccines. Um, I think you and I would agree that that the health director has the best interests of the people. Don't you agree, though, then that she should have a little bit of buffer between her personal home and these people who carry guns? Right. She's not an elected official, right? I think you're right. Yeah, I think she I think the mayor uh, yeah. so, so is that how it should be is if yeah. you're only if you're an elected uh, person, should you be excluded from this 300? Is that what you're saying? I think if you're not an elected official that um, you people need to realize that if you're not an elected official, you um, you're serving the elected official and that's where the, the energy should be directed because you work at their behest. 
and um, should be allowed. Um, I mean, 300 feet, like you said, is no big deal. But um, uh, here's the thing that happens. It depends, you know, like it depends on which side you're on and then it's okay and then it's not okay. If you wanna live um, where you can affect power, um, you've gotta decide. Um, how do we, how do we deal with this? You have to sit down and say, what's the right thing to do? Because um, we give away things when it's on our side and we forget that there are other points of view. And this, we're in a very interesting time in the United States right now, a very interesting time. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, living in an empire that has, fed off of personal freedoms instead of a sense of responsibility to all. And I think that's where we need to look because we, we need to look at where it's brought us to be able to make choices about where we want to go. So we want to live in a country where we use personal freedoms for those in power to like rape us and pillage us and fleece us for everything we have. And then we watch those personal freedoms that we promised people be not what we thought a personal freedom should be used for. It might be a good time to look as the United States of America and say, wow, collectivity is really necessary because this personal freedom thing isn't serving the collective. Now we have um, lots of ways that we've agreed to protect each other. Seat belts, you know, like lots of, you know, driver's licenses. <laughs> um, so I think the way to look at what's happening right now is why did this go wrong? What is happening right now? And what is the, what are we supposed to be thinking about right now in this moment when it's so wild? What, mm -hmm. you know, and look at the world. What have we as capitalists done to the world? And how do we want to rethink this? And it, I don't think it's about 300 feet between an elected official and an activist. And what's happening right now is we're focusing on these little stories instead of the bigger stories. Who do we want to be? And that's why we ask and cut the Pentagon. How do we make decisions for the people, the planet, peace, and a future? Because we're not, you know, China. How many people died in China because they agreed as a people to do certain things for each other? Mm -hmm. And why in our in this country? Are we so alienated from each other? What went wrong? Why have we, what has happened in the creation of this country that we should find ourselves so alienated from each other? Guess what? That is the war economies. That's what it does. It alienates us from each other. Not such a good thing after all. And how do we find our way back to connectivity? And those are the questions we ask, because if we can find our way back to connectivity, if we can find our way back to that we live in abundance, but we're destroying it, we're not going to have a future. We're literally on the Titanic going off the deep end. 
You know, it's 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 uh, it's kind of kismet that as I travel around the different neighborhoods for this crazy podcast, that'll probably take me 10 years to finish. But who cares? I want to do it. I want to go to every neighborhood. Um, Everything that you were just mentioning. The microcosm is in Venice in in a, in a very, very blue part of L.A., one of the, the, the richest and most successful cities in the country in uh, the richest state <laughs> in the country. We have we were having kind of a um, I don't know what type of war you would call it, but we had at least a war of ideas what to do with the homeless, what to do about new housing, what to do about transportation and pollution and businesses. Um, I never knew about the fact that there is this, I guess, unwritten rule about how there aren't supposed to be any corporations on the Venice Beach boardwalk. I wasn't aware of that. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, fuck yeah, I love I like that. It was called Unchained Venice. Because <laughs> we had it for a long time and even have a Kenny, but we, you know, we've lost that battle. But yeah. But I, pre- I appreciate where it's coming from. And, and it made me realize, is that why I love the boardwalk so much? Because I want to see like this German immigrant and his little stand next to a Jamaican immigrant and her little stand. And so, um, so it was beautiful to see but but again, bringing it back to the homeless situation and, and a lot of the the reason that Venice was on the 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 news so much over the last few months. How do you feel about the fact that Venice is is struggling with this more than any other neighborhood in L.A.? I have walked down the boardwalk in Venice for 50 years and I call it my church. That's, you know, if anybody visits, I take them to church and it's a walk down the Venice boardwalk. And I walked down three weeks ago. And I said, it's still church. You know, people want to tell these stories. And I think too much, we get caught up in the stories that we, we hear in the media and they, they live off of conflict. And you know what? Venice is Venice. And what's great about Venice is, um, you know, this peace economy project. Well, one of the things was, well, how do you create a peace economy? Like, how do we recognize who's at the largest effect of the war economy? And um, we researched and we had 1,500, and this is like seven, eight years ago, 1,500 homeless youth in our community. So it started out with feeding them out of the backs of our cars and the local Baptist church around the corner for me, took them in on Thursdays. And then we got the whole community to start feeding them and bringing backpacks and socks and really figuring out what is it to be a homeless youth and being connected to them and falling in love with them and taking care of them and lots and lots of people engaged in that. And then um, they created Spy, Safe Place for Youth. And then um, one of the therapists that was volunteering her time, her husband invested in Snapchat, made a lot of money, and then Bill got them a place on on Lincoln, and then they got you know job training, and they were taken care of, and that's that's what a peace economy is, right? Well, do you know when the neighborhood council election happened, and there was a, a ballot, a, a group of people on the ballot, they were like safe and secure Venice. Do you know that like seven times more people voted in Venice than any other neighborhood? Because no. Safe and secure is about taking care of the homeless because this war economy only survives because there are homeless people. This war economy only survives because there are poor people. And this economy is built 
because of them. And we need to take care of them. Not their fault. It's the system. It's the system, stupid. And it's not, a, it, you know, if somebody is, is unhoused, it's our job to care for them. And do you know that the people in Venice, like when COVID happened, I was out with everyone feeding people because the restaurants were closed down and how were they gonna eat? Um, we were even feeding the rats. How were they gonna eat? <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it's not as know, bad as you're saying that the, that the scene in Venice is not as bad? Venice, that we're the beautiful place in LA to live and it's for rich people, it's for poor people, it's for, you know, people from all over the world live in Venice. And it's, you know, every neighborhood's got, a you know, a, probably a billionaire and somebody that's on, you know, stamps. And unfortunately, because of like Airbnb and because of gentrification, too many people were buying up houses and, you know, flipping them and putting air and we've been able to stop the flips and we've been able to stop the Airbnbs and we're, we're you know, holding on to the essence of our community. But then you got rich people moving in and they want it to be their Venice, but it's not going to be because Venice is, you know, the Bohemian community that has been there for a hundred years. My house is a hundred years old and, um, you know, built by a black architect, by the way. So, um, you know, uh, it's a culture. And I want to say that unfortunately, the culture of the United States has been invaded by the war economy. It's a war economy culture. And we need to shift that and get the culture back. Um, if we're, we're like, we've become robots inside of a culture that makes you transactional and makes you scared and, and terrifies you. How did we go to war in Iraq? because Bush frightened the American people with color-coded alerts, orange, red, and yellow. That's why we called code pink. And we need to take our hearts and our minds back. We need to take back our souls. And it, you know, the only way we survive is by caring for each other. And so we can't get caught up in the media that has really become entertainment. And, the, and, and what it does is it creates these it creates conflict and it makes you afraid and it tells you these stories that make you go, oh my God. Um, uh, you know, for an example of like, you know, there's a white woman that got killed and is missing in the same place. There are like 200 stories of indigenous women that are missing and probably dead that nobody's talking about. What story gets told and what, what story gets told, what story doesn't get told. Every day, innocent people are killed by drones. But what did it take for that one to be raised up? It took that that person worked for an NGO that was not going to let the story be, not going to let his life be lied about. And they forced the White House to tell the truth. So, you know, we, we need to be able to go back to having minds that ask questions, minds that explore, minds that listen, that we listen to each other and have conversations about, why are you afraid? Why is this frightening for you? You know, because until we can listen to each other and find out what the core of the fears are that force these like extreme behaviors, uh, like going to war on innocent people and like, you know, being afraid of, of uh, vaccines and masks that protect us from each other, 
what's there? We have to ask each other, what's there? What are we afraid of? And what are we needing to um, be angry at each other about? Those are the questions we need to be asking. I, uh, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, my final question for you, because every answer you've given me has surprised me. And so thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you're the first person basically to tell me, Venice is fine, relax. <laughs> and it's nice to hear that. Um, and I agree with you. I think it, uh, Venice is kind of the cockroach of LA. While, while everything else dies in a good way, Venice will still be there and funky and probably smoking a joint and skateboarding into the sunset. Um, I'm a black person and it breaks my heart when I see these statistics of black and brown people resisting the vaccine. I can understand why Trump supporters and Fox News people are resisting it. But I'm having a hard time with black people. And I understand, yes, the government hasn't okay, been. So let me explain something to you. Go ahead. Um, my husband's Jamaican. Okay. <laughs> so when you've been oppressed for your whole existence, you are suspicious about what power asks of you. Rightly so. And you've been, you know, like we, we have to look at so many things. I mean, look, I'm one of the founders of Drug Policy Alliance to end the drug war because it was racist. But who was voting against that were black people in the communities I was trying to help. Really? Yeah, because um, you're also a human being and you've been at the effect of things that frighten you. And that's why we, you know, we have to understand we're all humans. And of course, Black people are just like I told you about the police in the Capitol. They're, the spread of what Black people are is as big as the spread of what white people are is as big as the spread of what capitalists are. We've had real experiences in our lives. We've been taught certain things. And certainly to be wary of power and wary of forced into things, a Black person has been told that as well as a white person. And I want to say that, you know, my husband was raised in Jamaica. He was, you know, he was, he didn't believe in, you know, AIDS, um, medic, you know, medication. He didn't, he, he was, he started out um, not believing, you know, that um, it was right, okay to be gay. I mean, because in Jamaica, that's what they teach. Mm -hmm. So it's what we're taught. And, and we have to debunk what we're taught. We have to humanize each other with, you know, of course, you know, my husband got over that like in 1968 when he came to America and got, you know, slapped up the side by some folks in the Black Panthers that taught him better because that he came to Detroit to be in the Black Panthers and got taught. But he got taught by people he respected and loved. We all need to be taught and we don't listen to each other. We don't even respect each other. I mean, just getting back to what is it that we're all human? And we need to respect each of us and we need to listen. I can't tell you how many times I was outside of the Capitol trying to stop the war in Iraq and people would come up to me and say, you hate George Bush. And I'd say, I don't hate George Bush. I actually feel sorry for George Bush. Do you know when he was a kid, his sister died and nobody talked about it for the rest of his life. I mean, you know what? I don't even think it's George Bush. I think it's Janie, who's a crazy person. But, <laughs> yes. you know, and I, these people were like trying to figure me out. Like, who are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, we all need to step back 
and find a connectivity to each other. Because if we don't, it's not going to be pretty. And we need to go back and figure out what creates conditions conducive for life. Because the war economy is killing us, it's killing our communities, and it's killing the planet. Jody, thank you for connecting with me today. I really appreciate it. God bless you. And I really appreciate what you do for all of us. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for spreading the news and connecting Los Angeles. <laughs> How cool was that? You know who else is cool? Our Patreon. Turn everything beautiful. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, here's a pussy hat. Here's a burger from the Apple Pan. Here's funding for a new website. Every buck you hand over helps us keep this insane project rolling. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Allie Miller, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Craig and Molly, Jamie Taylor, George Wright, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinky, and Ben Welch. Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is pay Palace 25 bucks or more and we'll list you on the Here in LA website forever. It's a pretty good deal. You will also be given a number that will denote how early you got in to make this dream come alive. For example, Angelino number one is Allie Miller. Number two, George Wright. Number three, Rita Joanne. And number four is Jason Sutter. Just PayPal, whatever you got, to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but you're broke? You still can help. Post things on Facebook. Like, oh my God, I can't believe that Tony interviewed the lady that yells at the people. Tell your friends. Tell your ma. Tell your pa. Tell your principal. Tell Principal Skinner. Tell them how Here in LA is spelled and that it's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google. Mm, pretty much everywhere that podcasts are, are coming up. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and the man who looks damn good in a tracksuit, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. We really, truly are going to every neighborhood in L.A. We have a couple more people to do here in, in Venice, and then we're heading to historic Filipino town, or Hi-Fi, some people call it. We'll find out if they really agree. If you know someone that we should be talking to in historic Filipino town, tell them to write me at Tony at TonyPierce.com. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen Adams for inspiring me to do this, and all the people who help activists do the jobs that we're too scared to do on our own. I invoke the fifth. 